Hello and welcome to the Ask the Expert podcast series at the Royal Geographical Society with Institute of British Geographers. I'm Laura and I write resources for the education department here. This recording is part of our growing series of interviews, questions and answers from leading geographical experts and practitioners. Dr Sean davis Volume is Head of Geoscience at the University of Derby. I spoke to Sean about shoreline change and its effect on communities in coastal Ghana. So can you tell me, Sean, what is a lagoon wetland system? Okay, um, lagoon wetland system occurs uh, at low-lying coastlines. So those that don't uh, have, they're they're largely um, sediment-based, they don't have uh, lots of cliffs, lots of relief at the coastline, and they mostly formed uh, as sea levels rose at the end of the last ice age and drowned um, river mouths. Uh, What that is manifest as today are lagoon, very shallow, almost like lakes that sit behind sand barriers at the coastline. And those sand barriers might be completely connected with land on other side uh, so that the lagoon is completely contained and separate from the sea. There might be uh, breaks within that barrier, so there's more of an interconnection between the sea and the ocean. There might be occasional breaks in the barrier so that uh, there's there's not always a connection between the lagoon and the the ocean, and that's often to do with seasonality of climate and and storm systems. The lagoons themselves tend to be quite shallow. Uh, they can be quite restrictive environments, especially if that lagoon is separated from the sea and there's a seasonality that causes evaporation and drying. So sometimes you have quite saline lagoons. Um, Often they're associated with specific vegetation. So in um, tropical areas like Ghana, there are mangroves within those lagoons, or there should be mangroves. There aren't always, depending on how humans have interacted with the lagoon. Um, and there are often, there's often a specific um, ecosystem and biodiversity associated with that rather restricted environment with the dynamism of sometimes being connected with uh, the ocean. Does that make sense? Yes, of course. And can you tell me why they might be particularly susceptible to the impact of sea level rise? Because all that separates this lagoon from the open ocean is a sand barrier between more stable land. It's like a sort of natural land bridge, but it is solely made of sand. So that sand is very susceptible to erosion. Uh, It's very susceptible to uh, changes in the uh, coastal regime, the coastal climate. And in terms of sea level rise, as sea will encroach onto that barrier, that barrier becomes restricted in size, um, both in terms of its width and how much is really present above sea level. So as sea level rises that sand barrier is, um, becomes less and less of a barrier. There is 
uh, propensity for more coastal flooding, more breakthroughs, throughs more connections between the lagoon and the, the open ocean. And so you've mentioned some of the impacts there of uh, ongoing sea level rise. Has your mm-hmm. research found that these impacts are felt more acutely in less developed countries? And why is this? I haven't looked specifically at how sea level rise and coastal change at um, lagoon wetland systems impacts people who live in less economically developed countries than more economically developed countries. There has been some work done on that previously, not my work, and the feeling is, yes, that that is um, an issue that people in less economically developed countries countries would be more vulnerable in these uh, living in these coastal environments than those people in more economically developed countries. And really, that's because the people that, that live on the barrier, that live in and around these lagoon environments, are very closely connected with their natural environment. They, are, they, they harvest the fish, they harvest the shellfish, they use the, the mangrove wood, and that makes them very vulnerable to any kind of environmental change, sea level rise on that lagoon barrier system. There are people that live on barrier islands and lagoon barriers in more developed countries, but they're not so intimately connected with the natural environment for their livelihood. So that makes them uh, more resilient and less vulnerable to the shoreline change. That's not to say that their houses might not get flooded and they might lose their home and their possessions, but their livelihood isn't so intrinsically connected to that um, current coastal setting and coastal environment. So your recent research project explored some of these issues um, in Ghana. Can you tell me why you chose this area and more particularly about the site that you your research took place at? Well, uh, I have to say that it was partly fortuitous that I was invited to visit as part of another project, some of the actually teaching related work that I was doing and that helped me to establish connections. Uh, That's sometimes how it works in in research uh, and how you find connections and places to work at. But it is a a fabulous place to study lagoon systems and how they're changing with climate and environmental change and sea level rise and how the people that live in those environments are living through that change because It is a protected um, lagoon environment. It's protected through the Ramsar Convention, which is um, a global convention that provides protection to wetland systems, whether they be at the coast or inland. And it means that uh, there are restrictions about or restrictions relating to development of that lagoon. So there are five coastal lagoons that have Ramsar designation in Ghana. And this is the most pristine in terms of its water quality. Um, It is uh, globally important in terms of its bird population. There are migrating birds that that stop there um, on their their route north and south. Uh, So it's, it's it's a very good case study to look at the changes that are going on now because it is relatively I hate to use the word pristine but it it is the environment is relatively pristine compared to lots of other uh, 
coastal settings, lagoonal settings that are more developed and do have more human impact. Great. So what were the geographical research methods you used to uh, carry out this investigation? Okay. Well, uh, the research there has evolved as I've worked in collaboration with uh, uh, other colleagues. I'm a geologist and physical geographer with a background in sedimentology. So originally I went out there to understand the erosion and changes in um, sediment deposition and sediment transport associated with the barrier. So what we were using was essentially a GPS mapping and spatial analysis of images, comparing high water marks that were mapped in the early 1970s to current high water marks to get an estimate of how um, how much sea level has risen during that time and how that's impacted the barrier. We were also, um, once we I had established that, then I was interested in um, current changes in terms of where erosion was, uh, in terms of where changes in, in sediment deposition was. I've, lucky enough to, I've been lucky enough to go back a few times over the last couple of years and I have a colleague that is based in that area, so they're able to uh, monitor environmental changes. And some of that is just by photographic analysis and remapping and looking at how the uh, sand along the barrier and around the barrier is changing in terms of its deposition, its transportation, loss of uh, trees at the shoreline or an indicator of erosion. So some of it is quite old school observational field science in combination with far more modern spatial and image analysis from um, air photos, from GPS mapping, from using Google Earth. Uh, so that's how uh, we, we started the project and we've been working on it for the last few years like that. And now recently I have a, a colleague who's a human geographer that's become interested in the project. And so we started to involve the people that actually live on the barrier. Um, I went out there in January and we were interviewing and conducting focus groups with people that live on the barrier and with um, local policy and government, um, people working in policy and government. government. So I guess that makes it mixed methods now because we started with yeah. more quantitative and spatial analysis mm. and now we're using qualitative analysis. Yeah, so it's really evolved over time. It has, yes. So how have you found that the Muni Ponadze Lagoon has been responding to sea level rise? Well, we're using data that was collected from the early 1970s and uh, looking at, well, it basically mapped the um, high water mark. So that's a, uh, a standard measure of sea level and comparing that to uh, comprehensive mapping that we did of high water mark in 2015, we found that sea level rise was causing the bar barrier to, to narrow. Essentially, the sea is working its way upwards onto a barrier that is at maximum a metre and a half high. So it is almost at sea level. The loss of land was not, wasn't uh, uh, really at the highest rates, rates we see in Ghana, but it, it's significant for such a narrow stretch of land because once you've lost that barrier, you've essentially changed 
that coastal shoreline from something that was a lagoon and quite a restrictive environment to an open estuary. So that's a huge change in, in biodiversity, in water quality, water chemistry, and that kind of thing. So uh, that was our uh, initial finding in the paper that was that, that was being most recently published. We've also done some projections of sea level rise onto the current coastal topography to look at how the lagoon might respond to future sea level rise based on um, current predictions of how fast sea level is rising in that area. And we see a, a fragmentation of the lagoon and really that, you know, the lagoon's lifespan is in terms of, of decades. But in studying the lagoon, what I've also come to appreciate is it not it's not just the sea level rise that it's important that is important for the ongoing change but it's also climate change more generally so the rainy season appears to be changing um, and that has an impact for the lagoon chemistry and uh, the connection between the lagoon and the ocean and the sort of seasonality of the connection between the lagoon and the ocean. So it's it, the sea level rise is a part of it, but I've come to understand that as important as the climate change and when the rains come and how heavy they are, that, that's altered over the last few years also. Absolutely. So you mentioned there the kind of increased connectivity between the mm -hmm. lagoon and, mm -hmm. and the ocean. And how does this impact biodiversity then? Well, there, were, there was quite a lot of study done on the ecology and biodiversity of the Muni Pamadze Lagoon in the early 1990s after it received a Ramsar designation. Uh, and those studies, not my studies, found that when the lagoon was open, and that often happened at the end of a particularly heavy rainy season because the lagoon would fill up and then the, there'd be a, an overtopping of the barrier from the lagoon side. So when that happened and there was an open connection between the lagoon and the ocean, uh, there was an increase in the amount and the diversity of shellfish and fish and then that connected then to the bird life. So as a whole, there would be, there is if we take that as our sort of case study, there should be an increase in biodiversity with that opening. Now, what that means for the species that are very much adapted to the more restrictive environments, the more saline waters, hasn't really been studied because obviously there would be different food webs and different competition between organisms but I'm not really a biologist, so I'm yeah. only going on what's been what's been done before in those prior studies. But that is what we infer to be happening now when the connectivity between the ocean and lagoon is becoming um, more common. It, 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 it seems to be the lagoon seems to be open a lot more than it used to be, given and given evidence from people that live there, um, from some other researchers that have worked there, from our observations. And so you mentioned, um, kind of touched on this a little early on, but how will this changing shoreline impact then the livelihoods of uh, people living in the local community who depend on the lagoon? Well, it's going to impact the, the ecosystem services of the lagoon. So essentially what the lagoon currently 
um, provides for the local community will shift and change. As that lagoon becomes more open, the um, fishing will change because there is a connect. There is a movement of an ocean fish into the lagoon. Uh, there's uncertainty about how that will impact the. Uh, lagoon fish population, but it does seem to be that that increase in biodiversity might offer more um, fishing. That might be a good thing, and more shellfish, so um, uh, shrimp, shellfish uh, also move into the lagoon when there's an increased opening. So that might impact the economics of the, or the economic livelihood of the people that live in the uh, in that community. Um, but from talking to them when I was there in January, there are very small scale things that impact them because they're so connected to a very sort of traditional way of life that it means that when the lagoons open, it's harder for them to walk to other communities that are further along the coastline because there's no sort of land bridge. So there are very small scale and specific things that impact their their livelihood and their lifestyle. So even even though it might seem that on the face of it, well, the lagoon might have an increasing biodiversity and that might be good for their fishing, there are lots of smaller scale things that um, impact them. Uh, there's also the impact of how that increased opening affects the uh, lagoonal cycle whereby the lagoon will fill up during the rainy season and that water is impounded that impounded water essentially increases the surface area of the lagoon, which impacts the settlement around the lagoon and causes flooding. If you don't have that, that means that the, essentially the lagoon's floodplain isn't as broad as it used to be. And what we are seeing with an increased increase in the open lagoon is increasing encroachment of settlements onto that lagoon area. Not necessarily legal settlements, but as space becomes available, um, people are moving into that space and they are maybe competing with the people that have lived on the barrier for um, decades and decades, well, for a long time in terms of the resources. So there's quite a complicated, uh, the changing shoreline has quite a complicated impact on the local community I mean, is the community in terms of the barrier community and how they are responding to it but there's also the larger scale community around the lagoon and how they are responding to it as well and the interconnection between those two and on the whole it looks to be that there is an increased competition for the people that are using the resources of the lagoon thank you for listening for access to further resources, publications and curriculum relevant material to support geographical learning and teaching, please go to www.rgs.org forward slash resources.